Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. I see, I see, I see before me, Leo, I see, I see 1979. 1979. And do you know what I see when I see 1979? Tell me, I'm interested to know. I see a hell of a lot of ground to cover within a one-hour show. This was a good year to be going to the cinema. It, it, it does seem that way. And it, it, this, if anything, I mean, you know, our whole... 70s approach thing has been somewhat in a way of like when we do you know in the next year show get down and hit 1980 I think we and our audience will feel that they are you know thoroughly grounded in the context of you know because I think one of the important things is going to be like, oh, yeah, that film, that seems a bit unusual, but obviously it comes out of all this that happens in the 70s. Do you, do you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah we're going to do that. Um, it, well, in the meanwhile, let us, let us uh, proceed, you know, uh, in a sensible fashion by introducing yes. ourselves maybe to new listeners who, have, who are particularly keen on 1979. I am Leo, and I am one of the 80s kids. I am Ian, and I am the other 80s kids. Well, another of the 80s kids, I suppose you'd say. There's lots of us. There wasn't some sort of King Herod wipeout of children in the 80s, and we're the only two survivors. I don't want to give that impression. No, no. Um, um, and, and in order to bolster that opinion, uh, heckles and random comments will be coming from another 80s kid tonight. The wife is with us. Hello, wife. Hello. Yes. So there we go. So... Um, well, I just, I, well, just we're talking about films that were released in 1979 today. I'm just going over this list. It's, it's almost like cinema 70s said, right, there you go, top that 80s. Um, yes. It, I, I think in some is... cases, they, they couldn't and just had to do sequels instead. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, things that leap out for us to discuss uh, today. Leap out out of the darkness, you might out almost of say. Darkness, yes. Uh, include Alien. I mean, that's going to be, you know, we might, we might have to circle around and come back to that film. You know, well, it's almost like, what can we be saying hasn't already been so thoroughly said about Alien? Well, we, we bizarrely, haven't really even talked about it yet. So, this is our chance. Um, the Amityville Horror. Uh, yes. It's a good job that Apocalypse Now is slightly outside of our bailiwick, because uh, otherwise we'd probably have to take that as well. Um, the Black Hole came out that year. I haven't seen that recently. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have. Uh, the I'm very familiar with the film. TV movie of Buck Rogers in 25th Century. Uh, a, a remake, the 1979 remake of Dracula uh, by John Badham. Uh, Mad Max came out in 1979. Uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian, which we have discussed, obviously, as it's uh, in my top five. Moonraker. Uh, Nosferatu. <laughs> Uh, directed by Werner Herzog, Phantasm, Rocky II, uh, Star Trek, the motion picture, uh, The Warriors. Um, so, you know, that's... Um, Honourable mention goes to When a Stranger Calls, which I imagine neither of... I've not, even, I've not seen the remake, I've not seen the original. Uh, well, we've got... We've got quite a selection box here, and I think, given that we only have an hour, we really need to start tucking in. Yes. So perhaps we should deliver the first morsel for um, for our uh, delight. Uh, where do we begin, though? My uh, God. I think possibly we should possibly... Well, you, right, I, here's an interesting question I have for you. Uh, I have seen The Black Hole maybe once, and I, I read the, the storybook when I was a child. Uh, I remember there was a big red robot in it called Maximilian. There uh, was indeed. 
Other than that, don't really remember anything. Do you? It was a. I suppose it was a bit more of a, a bigger deal for me. Uh, my dad had a a, a B-Tax video, and I think he got it on video. Uh, I was very familiar with the film. I wouldn't have seen it in the cinema at the time. And my dad also got me the action figures for the black hole, of which only Maximilian survives. Oh, I think I've got a Vincent robot somewhere as well. So you would like me to talk you through the black hole? Uh, yeah, maybe maybe black. talk 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 me through it briefly, and and for the people at home. And imagine because I imagine if it's a film that I've not been reintroduced to, you're you're probably the the you know in the status of expert on this movie. Well, <laughs> of the two of us, I suppose I am. Um, right. Well, it's kind of it's kind of two things. Um, the first half of the movie is kind of like I don't know. How did it begin with this film? It's 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 a relic. It is a relic of a movie. You look at it and go, my word, what is that thing sticking out the ground? Um, okay, uh, so you have some space explorers going through space in their tin can, and they stumble across a, the vast. Uh, Palmyra, I want to say, which was an earlier explorer vessel, but this was a vast, luxurious, uh, almost greenhouse. Like it's almost like a, like a structure of glass to it. Um, long spaceship of which what the father of one of the crew members was aboard and it disappeared eons ago, and now it is there. They found it on the cusp of a black hole, and they go over there, and all the crew have disappeared. The only person left is um, Reinhardt, Professor Reinhardt, I think. He's the only one left, and he's got the ship now crewed by robots and there was apparently some <clears throat> there was some accident and all the crew had to evacuate and there's only me left <clears throat> um, and there's a big mystery because he this guy is obsessed with black holes he wants to go through the black hole and he's like um captain ahab he just he just has to has to, just has to have it uh, and there's a big mystery going on on the ship which are which our crew begin to explore and all is not as it seems, and there's a lot of intrigue, and, and then it all gets revealed that obviously Reinhardt um, offed the entire crew, or more accurately, he he um, lobotomized the entire crew and dressed them as robots. Oh, but he does they, have, have some... they have silver shiny faces. That's right, they have robes and silver shiny faces. They're sort of uh, the drone uh, drone robots. Because uh, there's all clues now, because at one point there's a, there's a limping robot, and they see a, a funeral for robots later. It's like, what's all that about? That's very strange behaviour for robots. Of course, not robots at all. Oh, spoilers, by the way. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, lobotomized members of the crew slaved in undeath to Reinhardt. But he does have a contingent of metal red robots uh, to act as... Because, you know, omnipotence and having a slave crew means you have to have a, a battalion <laughs> of, of robots... Uh, and generally they needed to pad out the second half of the film because once the mask's revealed and he's a complete nutter and the crew just want to escape or something, uh, then uh, he then it just becomes kind of a chase movie through the ship, firing lasers at endless endless rows of rigid red robots. Uh, then an asteroid hits the ship and the ship starts to break up and uh, then they get off the ship and but it's, they're too close to the black hole so when they go. And it all go and basically the whole filmmakers had what's what's inside the black hole? What is it? Beyond conception, beyond imagination, beyond our mind. What is in there? What is in there? And they generally kept the secret about what happens about when they go into the black hole. And uh, in the book, all the surviving crew members kind of merge into a single life form, which you can kind of do in a book. But in the movie, they decide to go for the uh, Disneyfication of heaven and hell, and they go through a, a brief Dante's journey through hell, in which uh, Professor Reinhardt is fused with his chief robot, the rather nasty Maximilian. And the crew then send through a brilliant, bright corridor like heaven, and then fly at the other side of the black hole, and then it ends. That's that's basically it. Um, Maximilian, for my childhood, sticks in my memory because he had uh, whirring knife fingers, which sounds like it sounds like, uh, which he would dispatch people with. Uh, so he was definitely a very nasty robot. But we have the good robot in Vincent, who was voiced by Ronnie McDowell, I believe. Wow. Uh, uh, who had, um, he was sometimes visible on strings. He was a kind of like, it's, it's post-Star Wars, so cute robots are in. So he's a floating 
silver robot who can pretty much do anything. He had big um, square eyes, as I recall. He did have he did little little, little orphan Annie eyes, and he has uh, uh, he, on the um, Palmero he finds. Uh, no, it's a Cygnus. Palmero is their ship at the start. Cygnus is the one they fuck it onto. I'm so sorry, everyone. No need to write in. They find uh, an older model of Vincent that's all beaten up and battered from th- through decades of being bullied by all the other robots called Old Bob. Um, yes, and Ernest Borgnine is in it, which is just awesome. Um, yeah, I, that, that's basically, I've pretty much told you the entire story, and it, it's really odd at the start, you have this kind of murder, mis- this mystery thing going on, and then it just falls away, and it does just become like, you know, uh, Han and Luke running through the Death Star shooting stormtroopers kind of a thing going on. <laughs> Only, you know, without the Death Star trench thing at the end, they just kind of escape. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I, I, I think it's it's kind of seen as a flawed classic. Uh, they got some they got some good acting talent in there, and the first half they well, is quite intriguing. The second half is just so prosaic; it's there for the kids to go woo robot battles. It's, it's just well, I think when you say it's seen as a flawed classic, one of the things that occurs to me is that I've never once seen, for example, I mean, one of the things that tells you whether I think something is generally viewed as a flawed classic is Tron, which we've discussed previously, got like a 25-year double-disc super fantastic DVD release. That's a flawed classic. Black Hole disappeared into a black hole. I mean, I've never seen... I believe this comment has been made before. Although I I did hear rumours a while ago they were going to do a remake. Uh, Why, though? But it's, it's, it's odd... Because I think the first half would be boring for kids because it's essentially, you know, people in rooms talking urgently to one another. Uh, and the second half is just laser battle, laser battle, run, 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 run. And it, it's, it's, it's like two completely different things, two different movies. You know, it, it's almost like, yeah, it's almost like Praro suddenly became a roller coaster ride. It's like, huh? Um, uh, especially. Special effects were, were fine. It's a little odd that they don't need spacesuits in what is essentially um, a, a vacuum. I am told this is because the actors refused to wear the silly bubble-headed um, spacesuits. So good for them, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, one thing that does uh, spring into my consciousness as you describe this movie <clears throat> is that it provides us with links uh, to two other movies on the list of 1979. So we can move on quite confidently. Um, no, I don't think there's I can really say, other than the fact that it's kind of weird that having done hard sci-fi and then hard sci-fi action, they kind of go for the ultimate, you know, God, God, devil, good, evil um, solution at the end. But I suppose they just literally couldn't think of anything better, having said the mystery of what's beyond the black hole. Oh, just heaven, hell. Oh, well, there we go. Dante was right. But anyway, yes, where can we lead on from there? Well, first of all, one of the things that occurs to me, a a recurring theme, and obviously this is one of those things where I doubt that there was anything more than... I mean, you know, this is where you can start to get a bit beardy. Uh, We've we've already ruined one 35-year-old movie for people who haven't seen it uh, today. So let's move straight on with the second one. Your thing about, um, you know, people lobotomizing other people and turning them into robot-like slaves is picked up in another release of 1979, Phantasm, directed by Don Coscarelli. Have you ever seen this, this movie? This, this film has, has, has not been seen by me, but I understand it has floating balls with knives in it. Uh, yeah, limited exposure. I mean, the thing about the thing that Phantasm, Phantasm is much loved uh, by horror fans uh, for several reasons. Uh, it, it's very Twilight zone It's quite gory. Um, and it was made for tuppence. Um, <laughs> so it and it, and it, it it kind of prefigures at this point. Okay, yeah, uh, a penny, a very small amount of money. You know, you get the idea. <laughs> Two cents and a free toy from a Happy Meal. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Um, so yeah, Phantasm actually prefigures, um, and I can't say it invents, but it, it does definitely claim because we've we've at this point in time. We've had uh, Halloween and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, and we have not yet had Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street. 
Um, so it, it falls right in between, you know, this creation of of um, these kind of horror icons that will arise well, during the eighties. What is what is the stick? What is the what is the thing? Yeah. What is going on? And in Phantasm, this uh, creature that comes back, or the the villain of the piece, is a character known as the Tall Man, played by a, a very tall actor called Angus Scrim, uh, who, much like um, you know. Uh, uh, people like uh, Robert Englund and, and, and uh, Doug Bradley in Hellraiser, he had nothing better to do. So they made Phantasm 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, whatever. However many Phantasms they made, they made that many, and they never had a problem getting Angus Scrim to sign on the dotted line. He was getting paid to be the tall man. He enjoyed being the tall man. He was, is, and ever shall be the tall man. And in Phantasm, the tall man runs a crematorium. Uh, and the main characters notice that, you know, people are starting to get off. And then the tall man takes them away in his hearse. And they become concerned that, you know, maybe he's, I don't know, making business for himself. So it begins a bit like a sort of um, cross between Columbo, Scooby-Doo, that kind of thing. Then there's a, ooh, the tall man, I don't trust him, his eyes are too close together kind of thing. And uh, this this carries on for a while and, and there's all this thing about the, the guy who finds out is like a kid and then his brother gets take you know off and, and you know people are disappearing and it's that thing where it's like everybody thinks the kid is crazy and he's trying to prove that he's not crazy and that the tall man is, you know, quote unquote up to something. And I think one of the things that, I mean, you know, and obviously the reason for all this back and forth and mystery and not really being able to see much is down to the fact they didn't have any money. But then the, the thing that really does it is that they, there was a bit in, um, I was watching The Last Starfighter, which we shall discuss at the appropriate time. But there was a bit at the end of The Last Starfighter where I go, oh, and that's where the budget went. Like, the film is cheap as hell all the way. And then right at the end, it's like, yep. We spent, we've been saving all our pennies, have a space battle. And the Phantasm took a similar approach in that not a lot happens, and then suddenly at the end it goes bonkers. And what is happening is this. If you don't want a spoiler for this 35-year-old movie, you, I mean, you haven't seen it yet. Do you mind if I ruin it for you? Well, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just mute you for a second and then just tell me, oh... Oh, you can't tell me because it's muted. Oh, well, I have to find Oh, well, you'll just have to bear the... What turns out it's happening, because one, at one point the kid sees, but is not believed, that this um, this tall guy has um, these little helpers who are like monks in robes, but they're only about three foot high. Very reminiscent of uh, Jawas from Star Wars, actually. And they kind of move the bodies around. He's like, what's going on there? Why are they wearing robes? And um, it turns out that the, the tall man is an alien sent from uh, a, an alien civilization who go around enslaving people uh, by reviving corpses and then sending them to work on mines through a dimensional gateway. Um and the gravity on the planet where the mine is is so big that these corpses get squashed so they're only like three foot high. And the flying silver balls with the knives on them are like the, uh, the, the aliens sort of guard dog things inside the crematorium. So there's this crazy ending where all of this, you know, the, the, the tall man is unmasked, the, the hood is moved back on one of the the midget things, it turns out to be the kid's brother, but all squashed up and rubbery and and bits like of liquid coming out of his face and stuff. And and, and it's pretty horrible. And then these flying silver balls attack him and, and they see the dimensional gateway and then stuff happens. Yeah, uh, the usual end that you would imagine to a... So, so it turns out that although being a horror movie, it is science fictional in its basis... Um, and then it's just the fact that all the way through, you're, you're, you know, is he a ghost? Is he a zombie? What's with the little, you, the mystery? And when the mystery is real at the end, I think what it is is that it's actually, at the same time, insane, stupid, and quite satisfying, really. You're not, you're not, you don't feel you've been sold short by the fact that or you've been sitting there waiting for this all the time. And, it, you know, when they, it's, it's one of the few cases where when they reveal the mystery, it all joins all the dots, and it's this completely crazy 
So it's a sort of a, it's interesting crossover between science fiction and and sort of horror. Well, I mean, I think it's the thing of you know um, in the firm, and I won't actually reveal the twist of the firm for anyone who's not seen it. But come on, guys, this is that film's about twenty years old, isn't it? But when you find out what's going on in the firm, you're like, really, is that it? Really, this is all over that? And there's a lot of films like that where you find out what the big secret is, and you go, really. Is that is that really what's caused all this? Whereas when they find out the big secret in this one, you're like, well, I I have to say I wasn't expecting that. Um, this, so, yeah. Here I was hoping for a supernatural ending, and it turns out to be bloody aliens. Um, so yeah, so that's that's. So, but, I mean, it's interesting that in a sense, the tall man is doing the same thing as the the mad guy in in the black hole. So that that provides our sort of link between those two. The other thing that you kind of reminded me of um, with, with your descriptions of the black hole, uh, and I guess it's something we're going to have to talk about um, in this podcast without a doubt, is um, that idea of having a lot of stuff happening and it being quite slow and then having a kind of underwhelming reveal at the end. Um, you know, it, it, it does say Star Trek the motion picture to me. You know... <laughs> Definitely a contemporary, for me, of the black hole is Star Trek, the motion picture, because I got the action figures again. Thanks, Dad. Um, I think even as a kid, I knew the film was boring, but my overriding memory of the time was that there was Star Trek, the motion picture, ice lollies. And I can still kind of picture the flavor in my head of the Star Trek ice lollies. Sorry about that little... Little flashback to the seventies there or eighties, whatever well, it was. Well, kind of the point of the podcast to a certain extent. So carry <laughs> on. Well, yeah. Um, I, I mean, when I had it on video, it clearly became one I didn't want to watch because, like, it's a bit boring. They talk, talk for a bit, and there's a red alert, and then something happens, and there's another red alert. I kind of got bored of how many times there's a red alert in the Star Trek the motion picture. Uh, there's a lot to say about them. Well, there's not a lot to say about the motion picture. That's partly the problem. It's it it. it singularly fails to capture the spirit of the original television series um, I, I'm sure we all agree on that, it, it's kind of a shame I don't know um, yeah, it's, it's just a bit, bit boring and a bit ponderous um, and slow um, well, and I, I mean, it, it's right, okay seeing it now in its historical context, because Honestly, I mean, before I started... I, I'm, I'm much more forgiving of watching it in, f- from the start. Of it. I think there's, there's quite a few nasty bits in there as well, I think, which put me off as a kid. Like the people getting killed in the transporter accident is genuinely horrific, can I just say. Yeah. And, and, and afterwards, when, when they're dead and they sort of disappear with a scream, there's this, this horrible shock silence in the transporter room, and we're feeling it too. My God, that was awful. What was the point of it? Well, it was to kill off uh, Kirk's current science officer so Spock can get drafted in later. It's like, was that really necessary? <laughs> Always thinking about these transporter accidents, and now we've seen one. My God. Little wonder Bones never wants to use them. I'm with him now. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, this is the thing. I, when I actually look, I've never really put it in a historical context before. But, I mean, is this, I, I, I don't know of anything before this that is a precedent. But essentially, Star Trek gets made. Um, and then it gets cancelled, and that's it. It becomes a cancelled television show. This show has been it's finished, it's done. That's it. And yeah, it had this huge well, fan base, but at the time they were like, yeah, there's all these crazy people, and they love Star Trek and what, what have you. Um, I, I mean, I give you the point of history. I mean, uh, Star Trek did its thing on on television, then it died and cancelled, and it's only when it went into syndication it became the huge hit that it was. And they were, on the back of that, they were going to make more Star Trek, called Star Trek Phase 2. It was to be a television series. Um, and Lenin Nimoy wasn't going to be in it, so they put in a different Vulcan instead. And this Vulcan was going to be the first of Spock. Spock was, was what was he? He was, he was half human, but he really wanted to be Vulcan. Whereas now we're going to have a Vulcan who really wants to be more human. And there was going to be a, sort of, the bold lady was going to be this empathic... Um, uh, sort of psychic love interest character, and then there was going to be a younger second officer called Decker. And when you think about it, essentially, I mean, they chucked all that out because it became the motion picture and they reestablished the original cast again, essentially, and killed off most of those new characters. But essentially, they took the spirit of all those characters and put them in Next Generation. 
Data is not a Vulcan, he's an android. He wants to be human. You have the um, young Captain Kirk, second officer in Riker, as he was in the first series. And you have the empath counselor, who was a love interest. So all the elements of Star Trek Phase 2 are there. Those came along later in Next Gen. Now, they didn't make Phase 2. They said, Star Wars is out. What's our science fiction properties? Oh, Star Trek. And they kind of expanded the pilot and increased its um, budget. And it was a big, highly expensive special effects bonanza. Um, but Gene Roddenberry's idealism of the future essentially comes across as blandness. Because people aren't, you know, you have a world in which there can't be too much emotional tension going on because everyone's just basically chilled out and sorted now. So, and, and also, uh, the cast is not allowed to age, as they say. You know, they're all kind of, there was no acknowledgement that time had really passed. Uh, and in Star Trek 2, they kind of turned that around and made, made a point that Kirk was now feeling his age a bit. He was having his 50th birthday. Um, so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of how it how it came about, and I suppose it, it did it did very well, even though it was it was kind of panicritically and, and historically it's gone down a Star Trek the slow motion picture. Um, but I, 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 yeah, so I suppose it was good enough to get Star Trek two made, and that was the engine that kept the franchise running for for two decades afterwards. Well, it is it is very much. I mean, it's kind of like. Um... I mean, yeah, what you've just described is, is pretty much one of the planks of the, the problem here, which is that it is a reactive picture, not an active picture. It's a, oh, well, they've just made Star Wars. Oh, oh, we better go. And there is a feeling, I think, to that idea that it's very slow of they've taken all these people and, like, slapped them in the face. and like, wake up, you're doing this again. And you're like, are we? You know, like they're almost like, oh, is this what we're doing now? Okay, uh, I'll go and sit here then. You know, they're not sure. They're not. And I think when you say this got Wrath of Khan, Khan made, yes. But when you say it's interesting that then in the second movie they start saying, oh, yeah, you're getting a bit old, aren't you, when you're doing this. I think there's a reason for that, which is outside of. They may not have done that except for all of the other things that came out next to it, which made it, it accentuated its ponderous kind of slowness and seeming sort of like, this seems a bit of a nostalgia piece. Well, it, it's quite, it, it's largely humorless as well. And mm. Star Trek had a bit of humor to it. There was no real sort of character banter going on. I mean, Spock comes back and he's gone through some emotional purging training on Vulcan. So he's even more kind of devoid of wit and anything at all. He's just kind of getting on with his job and not really acting and stuff. And Kirk's like, Spock, you're back! And he blanks him and gets on with his job. Um, so yeah, it's, I don't know, and so there's not much, there's not much kind of banter. There's no real sense of family, which I suppose is what Star Trek had originally. Well, it's also and, it's also being and, and characterization. Yeah. Kirk's a character, and I suppose, but not many other people are. I mean, it's also occurring in a world against um, Alien. You know, I mean, Alien gets released the same year, and you're like, yeah, you know, when you when you weigh those two up against each other, you know, it's like, oh, I see, and and then you've got, um, in you know. Phantasm, which is, as we've already discussed, but made on a budget of virtually nothing, that comes out, and that's got a sort of edgier kind of atmosphere to it. Um, and then, you, you know, you put then Star Trek in the same camp as something like the Black Hole. And the Black Hole, you know, I think it took on the, the, the sort of the relicness of, you know, that's what we want in the past. Um, which actually, I mean, if I look back, if I think of myself as someone who was maybe, I don't know, 15, 16 in 1977 and was big into Star Wars, and then 1979 happens and we haven't had a Star Wars sequel yet, and suddenly it's all about Alien and, and you know, Phantasm and, and, and um, Mad Max, um, except I'd have to be Australian for that to be the case, because Mad Max didn't actually get a release in America till after the release of Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. So most people in America, that's why it was called The Road Warrior originally in America, because only the Brits and the Aussies got Mad Max at the time when it was out. But yeah, I mean, basically, so which is why I haven't sort of said it was up against that. I mean, if they had released Mad Max in the States in 1979, 
then it would have made Star Trek look even more irrelevant because that's another thing that was coming. I, I suppose, but Star Trek was like a proper space, space, space science fiction movie. And I don't really count Mad Max as science fiction as such. Uh, well, yeah, but I mean, it's that kind of edgy action, and it is, I mean, it is science fiction. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, the near future, which is something, which is, I mean, it's one of the first times we actually visit that, you know, when we talked about the apocalypse. The apocalypse was always a little way off, whereas Mad Max is like, no, the apocalypse is on your doorstep. It's going to happen in a minute. Um, the wife has a comment to bring. I'm going to a bit of controversy here and throw in a little bit of political, probably, uncorrectness and all this kind of stuff, but what changed in 1979 from the light-heartedness of the 70s to kind of throw in... Because all of it, if you look, it went really dark. The whole of the... Seven, from 79 onwards, everything went really dark, and the whole horror scene and everything came out of that. And you have to wonder what went off... What was going off in the world in 1979 that scared people that much, that this kind of whole... Tell us, of, pray tell us horribleness kind of went off, if you get what I mean. It was like everybody suddenly became really dark and brooding and... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but what, what happened? Do I you don't know. know. This oh, is right. what I'm saying. What happened? All right. Well, um, uh, Jimmy Carter? I don't know. <laughs> well, when did, when did Reagan first get... Uh, when 80, Reagan... 1980. 1980. 1980. Oh, but Thatcher was 79. Ah, but, right, okay. I so, mean, we yes. had, in this country, oh, I can understand it, because we'd had strikes, we'd yeah, yeah, had yeah, power yeah. cuts, we'd had, ah. we'd had rioting, we'd had all sorts of, in this country I can understand but it. That was a, but what had been going on well, around the rest of I the believe, world? I believe oh. that the American economy was in no no better state at that time. Um, well, you did, you did Vietnam finish, though. Uh, I'm not entirely certain uh, because I'm not, you know. It's almost I don't... like we had a bit of optimism, and then all of a sudden everything went away again. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, because we had all this stuff, you know, like Taxi Driver came out, and he was a, a, you know, a veteran, and I think there was a lot by that time. The sort of idea of veterans, you know, you know, the thing about it is World War Two veterans. From the point when they got back until doesn't matter. I mean, they, they you know later on we had more drama about well yeah just because you were in World War Two didn't mean you you didn't get a special free pass away from post traumatic stress disorder or as they they um, like to call it shell shock they didn't it, you didn't get a free pass away from it but World War Two heroes were very much these are heroes we are you know we should support our veterans. And because, you know, America felt that they lost the Vietnam War, those veterans were just seen as washed up crazies. And as well, well uh, you know, the Vietnam War was far more psychologically testing upon the psyche of the combatants than World War Two had been. 77 is, 75 is the date I have for the end of the war. And I think Nixon was deposed in 74. Right. So, so uh, there's a lot of this stuff going on. I and mean, it takes a while to filter through. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a theory. Years of optimism, and then all of a sudden everything yeah. goes bleak. Bleak. Hope yeah. enjoyed the moon landing because that was the high point. Yeah, and and yeah, I mean, so the, you see, because I mean, the, the closest. Sorry, sorry for interrupting yes. that, but that was just something that kind of yeah. occurred to me. What happened around that time yeah. that made everything suddenly go boom? Yeah, the closest thing that that the Americans did have to Mad Max would have made quite a nice companion piece actually uh, was the Warriors. Um, which is a very strange movie, um, just in historical context, because it 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 doesn't it, it kind of plays with a lot of things, but it isn't any of those things. Have you seen the Warriors? I have not seen the Warriors. Oh, I have it on DVD. It is a a terrific movie, if I may say. Um, the plot of the Warriors, which isn't um Right, now, first of all, there's a problem with the Warriors for people, some people, I think, in that they don't really know when it's supposed to be happening. Is it contemporary to the time of shooting, e.g. 1979? Is it slightly in the past, like many contemporary narratives are? You know, this just happened. Or is it actually slightly in the future? We're not, we're not 100% certain, because the main characters are a street gang um, in in New York. Now, 
this is where one of the bizarre things that makes people doubt when it happened. Um, Walter Hill's interpretation of street gangs was that they were all... It was like sort of like West Side Story, but in the 19, late 1970s, kind of with a disco funk vibe. But, and here's the thing, no music, no songs, no... They were just all dressed very strangely. So the members... Yes, I'm, looking, I'm looking at the pictures now, and I can yes. see the pecs. Yeah, I mean, the, the members of all the individual street gangs had their own look, but it was kind of like um, if street gangs were run by Broadway or, or, or Soho music theater, musical theatre. Yeah, that, they, the gangs looked very strange indeed. Yes. Okay, okay guys, we're just going to wear red leather waistcoats, but have them open, show off the chest. Well, that's that's the main gang that are the, the protagonists of the story. But there are lots of different gangs, and some of them wear masks, and some of them are dressed up like clowns, and some of them... Are, it's just really weird, the way that these... And, and, and I think that they, in an interview, they said, well, what, what research did you do into street gangs to make this movie? He said, I didn't do any, I just kind of made it up. I was <laughs> like, oh, well, it doesn't show much... Um, so what happens is that the members of the protagonist gang, and this is another reason why it's rooted in timelessness, the members of the gang don't care what year it is. It's just their life, and this is what happens. And they come from, I want to say Brighton Beach, which is apparently quite a long way out in New York, and they come on a train, and they're going to see a guy, and I want to call him Cyrus. I wish I'd watched the film prior to this. I mean, obviously, I've got it on DVD, so I, and I just haven't watched it in a while. Have you seen The Warriors? Oh, with the train, where they're going across the town with the train and stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, and this guy... For you if you want. The guy is, is basically like a sort of messianic figure among the, the, the... And he gives this famous and much sampled monologue speech in which they've got like the, this big sort of uh, outdoor concert area filled with gang members. And and he you know says you know there can't be but this many policemen in the whole town. How many people are there here? Do you know what? If we just rioted, we could just own this city. Who's with me? And then he famously utters, "Can you dig it?" Which just got sampled and sampled and sampled to death. And the thing about it is that the, a rival gang to the main characters gang have come to this thing, and they're not really interested in unity. Coney Island. Coney Island, there we go. So they've come from Coney Island, so have the other ones. And they, what they do is that the rival gang assassinate this gang messiah, and thus, by accident, prevent the gang from overrunning New York. The, you know, this united... Because they're all ready to do it, and then the, their leader gets assassinated in front of them. But then they pin it on the gang who are the protagonists. And... What basically happens is that they're, all the other gangs are so angry that this they were about to rule New York and now they're not going to because their leader has been assassinated. Um, a bounty is put on their head and they have to get back from the meeting to their base without getting killed when every gang in New York is trying to kill them. And just as an added sort of the voice of the narrative, a sort of Greek chorus, is provided by a female DJ who in, who delivers news via a pirate radio station to all the other gangs. And so they get news to her, and she says, oh, they've just been spotted here. And So that there's always this kind of cat and mouse of, like, the gangs are not very organised, but the radio station is organising them, and they've been wrongly accused, and the, the rival gang are still actually trying to kill them as well, specifically, and, and it all plays out like that. It was a crazy, you know, amazing setup and, and just a crazy movie with all this stuff. And it happened. And I, I mean, I don't believe it went over that well. I don't think people were like, oh, this is a great movie at the time. In the meantime, however, it has become one of those movies which people are like, have you seen this movie? You have to see this movie. It's one of those movies that you have to see. Um, it, it just, yeah, because it sounds like you've got a modern contemporary setting for sort of a tribalistic feudal society yes and and it has all of this stuff but it wasn't seen at the time i mean yes like i say if mad max had come out beside Apparently it, it opened 3.5 million on its opening weekend 
but they had to close some of the theatres that were showing it because of vandalism and, and gang problems in the, in the show. Oh, right, so the gangs, uh, quote-unquote, liked it. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, controver- it's a controversial movie in the, the hardcore sense that it caused problems for people. I mean, another thing that it sits next to is A Clockwork Orange. So, yeah, I mean, you know, but again, I don't think there was any conscious crossover. I think it's just, this is what was on people's minds. It's 14th on the 25 25 years of the most controversial movies ever. Who made that list of most controversial? Entertainment Weekly. Right, number 14 on Entertainment Weekly's uh, top 25 most controversial movies ever. And incidentally, I think it came in at somewhere like number 8 or number 9 in my list of top films of the 70s. So, you know, it, it's uh, it, it, yeah, it's a it's a crazy movie. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and that's what the zeitgeist was. Clearly, you know, I mean, that that's what, you know, punk was happening and stuff like that. So you get things like, I mean, I think to a certain extent, if you'd have been in 1979, you'd have said, oh, the black hole will probably get away with this because it's a kids' movie. But Star Trek, that just looks a bit dated now. Um, you know, and that's and what's really interesting is that it's completely the opposite way around. So, yeah. Um, I mean, well, speaking of... Sorry? I, I was just going to say, and, and I mean, you know, just to sort of... I've just noticed, because I had sort of... My eyes had skipped over it before. Another film that came out in this year was The Brood, which was directed by David Cronenberg, which is a completely bonkers bio-horror movie, which is, you know, we expect no less from David Cronenberg. So, again, that was something that was happening. You know, the hipsters of the time were into that. They were into Mad Max. They were into, you know, The Brood. They were into The Warriors. They were into Phantasm. They were into Monty Python's Life of Brian. Essentially, this is a year in which smaller movies danced rings around quite a lot of the bigger movies and then you know i mean it 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 becomes clear why it is that um alien became what it became what it has become to this day because it's the only slightly larger budget movie i mean it wasn't a huge budget it was kind of mid budget that that um, mm-hmm. that even tapped into any of that stuff at all it was a stupid well, picture anyway you know well, Alien uh, is a film, I, well, as a child of the 80s, I got Aliens first uh, and went to see Alien, well, didn't went to see it, I saw it on video afterwards as kind of, you know, extended reading. Um, and it's quite interesting to go from your mul- multiple war film Aliens, which gives you a certain expectation, to go to a film where there's just one of them in a sort of haunted house in space scenario. I was like, oh my god, they're really dragging out this one alien. They've just got no weapons whatsoever, have they? Um, so that's kind of my impression of it at the time. Um, it, it's a good movie. Um, alien and Aliens, I'm kind of like, you know, that was it for me. There is no Alien 3 or Alien Resurrection or Alien Predator nonsense going on. I'm kind of like the, a purist. And anything after that is just kind of speculative other dimension fiction that I will enjoy, I suppose. Um, but they're, they're kind of alien aliens. Boom. They were sort of two solid movies. Yeah, and then if I could just get them both on DVD without the other ones, I probably would. Um, well, right, okay. Here's, my, my approach to it was slightly different. My, my father uh, did a lot of reviewing at the time, and, and he got sent review copies of things that he was never going to review because they weren't interesting to him and he, he only reviewed things he was interested in in reviewing um but he got sent the graphic novel of alien and, and it was i'm talking i'm not being you know poncy about that it was a, like a little paper but trade paperback one issue there is no more of it graphic novel translation of alien and um he didn't want to read it but i like comics so he gave it to me to read and I read it. It was pretty good, actually, as I recall it. I might have, I might have completely misremembered. But I really did enjoy um, the graphic novel a good deal. One of the best things, I think the thing that the graphic novel did better than the, um, than the actual movie was the bit where they slice through the facehugger's leg and the acid goes right through the ship. In the film, you just get a lot of cuts of them going down, running down the floors, going, oh, my God, it's still coming, oh, my God. In the comic book, they just had, the, like, on the left-hand side, right-hand side of one of the 
the pages, yeah, the right hand side, they just had like a cut through of the ship and you could see this drop going all the way down through the floors, which gave you a kind of impression of the living quarters of Nostromo as a whole. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it was, it was a pretty decent thing. So I, I never actually, I watched Aliens a lot later. So Alien was like the first reference for me. Uh, I suppose, um, I mean, artistically, people, Alien is kind of the higher of the two. Uh, of their alien is a very good science fiction genre movie that I think shaped a lot of movies set in that kind of future since. But I had a friend who whose dad was an artist, so he had a lot of he had a lot of art books, uh, and he had a, a really huge sort of coffee table photographic book about Alien with all the sets and the and the concept art and the costumes. And I suppose and you know I think. The, the the thing I really wasn't expecting because because you, you go to watch Alien, you, I was focusing on oh here comes the monster, but it, it's it takes a long time to get there, and of course the, the through line to getting to the alien egg is the crashed alien spaceship, and that whole kind and the fact it was just completely unexplained and left to your imagination, and when I dwelt upon this, it just seemed more and more awesome because you had that wonderful was called they call him the space tracker, don't they? Space um, jockey. Space jockey, uh, you know he's 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 this huge, uh, sort of possibly humanoidish creature, and it seems like he's almost blurred in with his chair, and it, it's just a little tiny snapshot of a completely alien world, just that little fossilized dead body, and it just it still spins my imagination wheels today, even though they made Prometheus. I still have to, but that it's just it's it's a really awesome iconic image of science fiction and hard science fiction at that. This thing would be incomprehensible to us. Is what what I feel. Sadly, we now know they're all in fact just giant humans, which kind of ruins them in my opinion. But just at the time, that kind of fossilized elephantine face, the size of it, the fact it was fused to its chair, so you know being fused to your ship. Totally normal thing for them in, in this bio-organic society. Uh, did, did it did it ever capture you at all in that way? Um, yeah, I think I think that's it. Well, again, in the graphic novel, that's a crazy picture. It's like a big page spread, and you are like, wow, okay. Um, and I think I think that's the thing. I, I recently acquired a high definition television. I know I'm a little bit behind the curve in these things. Uh, and well, the first thing I stuffed on because I was like, okay, you're high definition, let's impress me. And I happened to pick up a copy of Blade Runner on, on DVD. Now I watched Blade Runner quite recently, like last October or whatever, because I was doing an article about uh, Philip K. Dick adaptations or or science fiction movies that have been inspired by the work of Philip K. Dick anyway. And at the time I watched it, I'm like, yeah, the thing about Blade Runner is that, you know, it's got a lot of worthiness, but in as it's gone on historically, really, the soundtrack is incredible, but the dialogue and the story, it's all a bit stertuous, really. It's just, oh, uh, ponderous. And, I, you know, I don't really understand, you know, how people got quite so obsessed by it or whatever. And I put it into the DVD player and, and it came up and it upscaled it a bit because it was just a DVD translation. But suddenly I'm watching it and they're playing the soundtrack. I'm looking at the picture in high definition. You suddenly realise there's so much to see in the picture. Mm. Like if you're you're looking across the screen, there's these tiny little details in all the corners, and you can't see it on a normal definition television. And you, oh, okay. And I almost sat back and just watched the whole thing. And I think probably if I stuffed Alien in right now, it'd be the same that Ridley Scott got this thing which, you know, he did for a little while in that Alien Blade Runner period where it was like he was just going to cram everything into the picture. And and I think what I wrote, I mean, I think there was, a, there was a place for that in cinema, but there was no way to translate that to a home experience at the time and hasn't been until now. And that means that, you know, if you look at something like Prometheus, we did go and see that in the cinema and... In no way, it doesn't have that same... He started to be more... Well, yes, I like the insane detail, but really we've got to get on with making a film. And and I, I think to a certain extent that's a shame. But yes, both Alien and Blade Runner are quite slow 
um, if you watch them in a low definition, you're like, this is almost too slow. But if you watch them in a higher definition, you realize they're slow because there's too, there's a lot to see while they're playing music and you're watching it. And it kind of puts you in this strange frame of mind where you're just looking at things, which, you know, it's what cinema is about, isn't it? Atmospheric, really atmospheric. So I think that's definitely, you know, I think we've pretty much covered off Alien. And I, I mean, you know, Alien prefigures, along with all of these other, it's kind of like the flag waver for all of these little things like the Warriors and, and Mad Max and things like that. This is the film that is leading this grunge, um, not in the musical sense, just this kind of grimy, gritty, edgy, horror-based you know, action science fiction, just like this entirely new sort of more mind-blowing approach that is going to emerge to all of these genres and, and things like that. And what better film to finish off the podcast and talk about the death of all the things that were and the, the things that are finally coming down to an end than looking at Moonraker, where James Bond goes into space. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, I, I can kind of go with it up until the point the space station gets revealed to NASA on Earth and they immediately launch up the space marines and have a, a laser battle in space. Yeah. <laughs> That's where it's like, I, I just can't buy this anymore. Megalomaniac beats build space station. I, I can get that. Megalomaniac maniac steals space shuttle. Okay, yeah, fair enough. But it's like, what, the United States Army has a lot of space laser-armed astronauts in their silly silver spacesuits with with, leg, with ray guns, genuine ray guns. You, you can leap into action at any moment and take out a hostile force of other space-suited <coughs> combatants. Really? Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, it's because... Well, it's, I mean, it, what's interesting when you look at an actual list of what films came out a year and you see what James Bond film came out, you know, in that year... James Bond essentially has been, you know, he's been reinvented more times than Doctor Who has regenerated for a, you know, <laughs> like every time they make a new one, they always look around and say, what's happening in cinema at the moment? And then they kind of go, so at the moment it's space stuff. So James Bond goes to space. Yeah. It's also, there's a lot of, there's a lot more kind of humor in this one. I think it's where humor really starts creeping in. Because I don't, I don't recall, you know, um, Spy Who Loved Me being necessarily full of guffawing moments. But it, it's almost like, because this, this is also the first time we get a, a returning henchman in, in the form of Jaws. Only in this one, he, he sort of played up for even more comedic effect about just how indestructible he is. And so the, 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 uh, the chief bad guy, Drax, his initial henchman gets bumped off halfway through. So he's sort of like on the phone to his, like, human resources department going, oh, so uh, who are we getting? Oh, oh, him. Oh, he, oh, he's very good. Cut to Jaws arriving at the airport, sending off the metal detector. What was really interesting <laughs> about that, though, uh, it has to be said, that there is form on that. In response to your uh, spirited defense of Inspector Clouseau a few shows ago, um... I, I actually, you know, it's on Netflix. It doesn't cost me nothing except time. Uh, although the half hour that I did spend on this, I do want it back. I watched the beginning of, of one of the later ones, 1978. Because I didn't go for all the way back. Incidentally, um, the first one was called The Pink Panther. The second one was called A Shot in the Dark. They were both from right. the 60s. Uh, but I watched a bit of, I think it was Revenge of the Pink Panther. And it's interesting that you picked up on the line, a bomb, a bird, is this your bomb? That actually happens within the first 10 minutes of that movie. Uh, so I was like, ah, right, I know where we are now. Um, but interestingly, there is a scene in that in which someone's on the phone to henchman's are us and gets sent someone to deal with Cluzo, who uh, manages to escape uh, death by a series of crazy, fast-like coincidences. Um, you know, well, it's just... Mr. Cluzo, the other one's James Bond. You know, it's Mr. Cluzo, a comedy henchman. Well, what's interesting about it is that, you know, obviously the Pink Panther didn't last a lot longer than that for various reasons. I, I don't think it would have lasted even if Peter Sellers hadn't died. It would oh, have... definitely, there's always diminishing returns to these things. Yes, but what's interesting is that, therefore, James Bond and the, the Pink Panther kind of started for a while to merge into one with this <laughs> idea. that Because what's interesting about it is that 
to a certain extent, I'm wondering whether most of the people in the Pink Panther played it straight. And they, they kind of they think there was this thing of like the joke is that everybody else is serious and that, that Peter Sellers is hamming it up. And that's the joke, which is like, okay, it's not a very funny joke, but you, you carry on, knock yourselves out. And therefore, the like the guy who's trying to kill Cluzo is trying to turn in a fairly serious performance, and so is everybody else. All the other people are trying to play it deadpan, and that means that when they introduce this crazy big henchman guy who is going to go and kill Inspector Cluzo, were it not for a series of fast-like coincidences, um, they go. Yeah, I mean, basically, this guy walks into a room. He says. Uh, these eight men gathered here are among the most lethal killers known in Europe. Ah, so you've hired these men to take out Clouseau. No, I've hired these men to take out this man. And they open the door, and this giant guy with you know, comes in and kills all the eight top killers. And it's supposed to be pushing up the kind of, oh, yeah, now something's going to happen. You know, there we go. So but basically, that is... What's interesting about that is that, obviously, in the Clouseau movie, it's kind of like this really laboured setup to a gag and trust me there are a lot of laboured setups to a lot of <laughs> gags in that movie but obviously in James Bond they're going oh it'll be fresh if he's a bit more humorous and light hearted even as in another movie that kind of thing is dying the death and it's like really you're, this is what you're thinking is going to breathe some fresh life into the franchise. Um, yeah, I mean, it just it's kind of odd that these were thoughts that were being had left and right in the, in, the, in the world of Hollywood at the time. In one place, a gag was seen as old, tired, ready for the knacker's yard. And in another part of the same industry, this gag was like, yeah, this is the new thing. Uh, I mean, I suppose so we, we, we're going to close up now. Yes. Do we have anything to say? I mean, the one thing I noticed that we really haven't talked about is Dracula 79. I, have actually, I don't think I've seen this version of Dracula. You've not seen the John Bell? I've seen it like one and a half times, I want to say. Laurence Olivier's in it. Frank Langella as Dracula. Um, hmm. Right. I think the only comment I'm going to make about that uh, before we move on very quickly is anyone who hasn't seen it, nah, it's not bad. And I think that's what killed it. If it was like the worst adaptation of Dracula ever made, it would have a n notoriety about it. As it was, it didn't match any of the previous versions. You know, <laughs> Hammer outdid it, Universal outdid it. They all outdid it. You know, your classic 30s Dracula couldn't get past it. This one didn't do badly. It just kind of didn't do anything, really, and existed... Were people just not ready for another serious attempt at Dracula or something? I don't know where how it did, but it, no, it's not that. It's just it wasn't remarkable in any way, and that's you know that that is the long term kiss of death. I think to a movie, if the movie is not noteworthy in any sense, I mean, I can't, I'm struggling to find anything to tell you about it. It's Dracula. Well, I, another film I haven't seen. Uh, Nosferatu, same year. I assume that's a vampire movie. Uh, yes, that's uh, Werner Herzog with the sort of uh, remake of the earlier uh, Nosferatu. Um, yes. This one had Klaus Kinski in it, though. I haven't seen the remake of Nosferatu. I've seen a little bit of the original Nosferatu, but I haven't seen the remake. I've, I've seen the original Nosferatu. It's, it, it's still a very creepy film. Yes. I think, I think that's possibly, if we're actually going to... Yeah, I think if we're going to talk to all, if you bring out a completely mediocre and unremarkable adaptation of Dracula in the same year as Werner Herzog is bringing out Nosferatu remake starring Klaus Kinski, it's not you know, you know you're not it's not there's no, there's no competition there it's not so yeah I mean that that's all all that we've got to say I think about that now yes. in the next year show you know technically. What we did with the 70s was we started with our top five. But we started with our top five because we could pick our top five from anywhere in the 70s. It didn't have to be in the years we were actually going to talk about. There are two reasons why I think we're going to reverse the approach on the 80s and talk about each individual year and then 
finish off the 80s with our top five. First of all, because that seems like we don't, we're, not, we're not missing any years in the 1980s, so we don't need to cover any ground early on. Second of all, there are so many movies in the 80s that could make the list. I mean, the 70s was somewhat tough, but in the end, it, we got her done quite quickly. It was like well, there, there were clear survivors that were still standing yes, in, yes, in the yes. present day. But I'm like, I cannot commit to myself on a top five without some serious thought. So that is what we're going to do. Yes, the wife has already produced her top five of the 80s. What I'll be curious to see as we run through the weeks is if she goes, oh, actually, I'd not thought of that movie. Maybe it were, maybe she won't, but... There's only one I've changed, and that was just this one because she said I could. Oh, OK. So there we go. So there we go, but yes. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So she, she's got hers. Um, so yeah, so we we don't have to rush to have ours ready. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to rush to to to, to get into it. Um, well, in fact, well, we'll give you your own show then. If that's all right. Why? Well, because um, we found it quite. I think with the seventies running through. Well, we each got a show, didn't we? Me and Ian is over the course of it because we did, you know, our top five over two shows. So if you split that down. Really, we got a show each. Um, so, yeah, so everybody who gets a top five gets their own show. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll shove that in. Okay, so, um, yeah, that's that's the 70s, everybody. We didn't get a chance to talk about Rocky 2, though, which is a remake of Rocky 1, where he, instead he wins at the end. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, what uh, I have noticed, I mean, it's not a glaring error, I think. I think it's just... It's Rocky 2. What do you want us to say? I mean, we, already <laughs> talk, we talked about... Well, and also, the Muppet movie. We haven't talked about the Muppet movie. Well, the Muppets, of course, went on to have a, a glittering career in the 80s. <laughs> they should have their own I don't think that the Muppets fall under either horror, sci-fi, or action. So, I think we're... Until, obviously, you get to Muppets in space and things like that. Yeah, pigs in space. Pigs in, pigs in space. So yeah, so I mean, yeah, I think, I think, yes, what you're demonstrating there quite ably, in fact, is that as far as the 70s go, we're pretty much ready to stick a fork in it. There, there are things that we could talk about, but really, you know, the barrel is empty and yeah. we have to get out the scrapers. So, um, yeah, uh, I think that, one of the things that I'm profoundly relieved about, although I can give people a heads up on this straight away, as I've, you know, being in the show, in order to do research, I've nipped ahead and had a look at 1981. I think what people are going to be surprised by is that, that, you know, you don't switch over from 1979 into 1980 and suddenly it stops being, you know, Dirty Harry, Rocky, James Bond and, the, you know, all of this kind of stuff and start being, you know, John Hughes and all of this. Like, you'd be surprised. You will, I think people will be surprised in a historical context at when certain, you know, things that are associated very strongly with the 80s actually occurred because... Well. You know, that isn't how it works at all. We know that's not how, how decades work. It takes a while for you to figure out what the flavour of, of a decade is. Well, I think the other thing about it is that if you, you think of, if something, you know, really was very, you know, something's very 80s in inverted commas, then you'd think it would happen earlier on in the 1980s because then it would have most of the 1980s in which to pervade pop culture. Whereas actually I think some of the more 80s, 80s things were more reactive than that and actually happened as the 80s were beginning to expire. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting. So, uh, yeah. But a discussion for another day. Yes. Um, but speaking of discussion, there's a, there's, there's a place on the internet where you can have some. Yes, it's called there Facebook. Is. Um, we're on Facebook. Did you know that? I did know that, uh, but maybe some people who are really into 1979 and the same people that we introduced ourselves at the beginning of the show for don't know anything about that, so you might as well tell them. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, I will. Um, we're on Facebook. It's, so that's you know, Facebook slash Revenge of the 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in numbers, so that's 80s kids. And please go there and like our page and leave a comment uh, where we post our links up there, and we post news feeds up there and occasional commentaries. Um, that's, that's our social hub. That is, 
that's kind of like a what would you describe? That's a that's a lounge room, I suppose. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you can leave stuff on there, and when we do a news show, we will uh, almost inevitably discuss it. Uh, but there's another place you can find our podcasts, and that would be on podomatic.com. Um, so to go there, please type into your web browser, 80s Kids, and this is 80s as in letters, so it's E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S, kids.podomatic.com. Uh, please go there, please subscribe, uh, or whatever, um, whatever, whatever podcast acquiring method you prefer, be it iTunes, be it whatever, be it direct download from us. Uh, you can also leave a, a comment there directly on the podcast. And uh, yes, that, that, is, that is where our stuff is and our, our should... glorious, ever-growing back catalogue of previous episodes. Ah, well, it's a good job that you mentioned the ever-growing back catalogue, because yes, we do have an ever-growing back catalogue, because obviously as we have more shows, then the back catalogue will grow. However, at present, we, we do not pay for space. And even if we did, space would be finite. Because space is finite... We are halfway currently, uploading-wise, through our, as we record this, through our allotted amount of space to keep shows in. And um, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, whether we're going to be... What we'd really like is if somebody could tell us, is there anywhere that we can host old shows so that an archive is always available? Or, you know, is there something that we can do so that people can always get hold of that? you know, golden 80s kids zero, because eventually I am going to have to start deleting old episodes out to make room for new episodes in our vault of episodes. So, uh, yeah, grab the back catalogue if you want them. And I think, I mean, maybe people aren't really that bothered about getting episodes, uh, news episodes, unless they're particularly interested in the topic. Well, I think certainly our gallery of going through you know, decades and years, that, that could make a sort of collection of informed comment. Maybe I'm... maybe I'm Now available in a box set. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, that, so that, just be aware that the, the things that are up cannot remain up forever because we only have a limited amount of space. Uh, Although we would like to keep them available if we yes, have a solution. Yes, we possibly can. So if anyone's got any help on that, because I've had a quick look and I can't find anything that's particularly obvious... So, uh, yeah, um, and that kind of covers the whole show, except if you want to find me, because you don't find you anywhere else. You're an 80s kid through and through, aren't you, Ian? Yep, uh, that's pretty much what I am. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, I'm pretty much an 80s kid through and through. If you go to my blog, leostableford.blogspot.com, you'll just find a load of links to some podcast I do. So that's what happens. But the other thing that I am committed to doing this year, because it, it pre-exists and it's not something I'm, I'm looking to stop, is that I'm uh, writing humorous fairy tales, which come out on a weekly basis. They make a kind of a, a serial type of thing at bridgetowntales.blogspot.com. So you can find that there. Uh, join us shortly when we will be uh, getting on our big tall hair and our massive shoulder pads and visiting the 80s. Until then, from me, bye-bye. Farewell. <laughs> <laughs>